Well, here we are again, socially distant. But of course, thanks to the moderns, uh, the wonders of modern technology, we are not socially isolated. And I'm learning there's a huge difference between the two. I've got to be honest, I was a little bit questioning or cynical about connecting in a virtual way. And uh, I wasn't expecting it, but I've been looking forward to being together like this, to having you uh, in our living room again. I don't know about you, but there's a kind of connection we share at times like these. It was a pleasant surprise for me anyway. That's even better than when we're together. Because somehow you appreciate each other more. And that adds something that's very real to, to, to this virtual experience. Yeah, we lose something when we have to connect at a distance like this. But we also gain what the distance stirs in us. And that is a kind of longing. It makes the heart grow fonder, as they say. It stirs a greater appreciation for each other. I know it does for me anyway. An appreciation that I think will stand us in good stead once we're back together. It's kind of like what Paul said to the Philippians. He was socially distant from them because he was in jail, of course. And that stirred something in him. And so he said, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It was a deeper longing that he had. And I feel that way too, and I know some of you do as well. And so I guess from that perspective, the longer the longing goes on, the deeper the affection it will become. It's, it, it's God's recipe for something better, which as we'll see today, is always his way when we suffer. By the way, I've just got to ask you this. You know what you turn into, uh, Julie picked this up on Facebook the other day. Do you know what you turn into when you practice social distancing? Here's how it goes. So you're staying inside, practicing social distancing, and cleaning yourself? Congratulations, my friend. You become a house cat. (laughs) We're going to see today that anything we go through, and who knows what else will come, is part of a recipe. Even the worst that could happen from losing your income to losing your life and anything that might happen in between is not a recipe for becoming a kitty. No, it's a recipe for glory. It's always his way when we suffer. It's like one of my favorite stories. It's called A Piece of Cake. I'm sure some of you have heard it as well. So a little boy is telling his grandma how everything's going wrong in his life. It's all bad at school, at home, with friends, etc., etc. And grandma's baking a cake. And she asks him if he wants a snack, which of course he does. Here, she says, have some cooking oil. Yuck, grandma. Well then, how about a couple of raw eggs? Grandma, gross. Okay, maybe some flour or baking soda? Grandma, those are yucky. To which Grandma replies, Yes, they seem to be bad all by themselves, don't they? But when they're put together in the right way, they make a wonderful, delicious cake. And she went on to explain that how God works in the same way. She said, Many times we wonder why he would let us go through such hard things, don't we? I do too. But God works them together for good. We just have to trust him, and eventually he'll, that, uh, he'll make something wonderful out of them all. And then it concludes, hope your day is a piece of cake. There you have it again. The heart of this passage that we'll be looking at today, and let me say it again, 
because it will stand us in good stead in the weeks and perhaps months to come. All that we're going through and whatever else comes, all this, even the worst of what could happen from losing your income to losing even your life and anything in between is not a recipe for becoming a kitty. No, it's a recipe for the piece of cake that we call glory. It's in Romans 8, and we'll start in verse 16. The Spirit himself, Paul says, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the first gift of grace, as we saw last week, that we're now children of God. It's the first gift that Paul highlights, and what we've been seeing is really a symphonic celebration of the greatest gifts of grace that we call Romans 8, our identity being the first by which we cry, Abba, Father. And then in verse 17, he starts his transition to the second of the greatest gifts of grace, the gift of glory. And from there, next week, we'll see our destiny and then our security. This week, reading on now, glory. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The idea being no pain, no gain, no guts, no glory. That's how Paul tees up his discussion of the gift of glory. It colors all the verses that follow in this great chapter. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Because all the groaning through all the suffering is the recipe. They're the necessary ingredients for glory. Now, Paul goes on to weave these two themes into each verse of this passage. The first half of every verse is about the groaning, and the second half of every verse is about the glory. And then in the last two verses, verses 24 and 25, Paul sums it up by highlighting the hope that links the two. The hope that through it all, according to Hebrews, can be an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast. So, Let's trace these two threads that are woven together here, and then we'll unwrap them and look at them separately. You might say Paul wraps the golden thread of our glory around the scarlet thread of our groaning. Romans 8, starting, uh, in, verse, uh, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he says, there's the groaning, that's the scarlet thread, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. That's the golden thread. For the anxious longing of the creation, that's the groaning, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the glory. For the creation was subject to futility, which has to do with the groaning, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope the hope of glory, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption, the groaning, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers, that's the groaning, again, the pains of childbirth together until now, birth that intimates the birth of glory. And not only this, but we ourselves also groan within ourselves awaiting eagerly our adoption of, as sons when there will be such glory, the redemption 
of our bodies. And then he puts it all together, for in hope we have been saved. That is, the real payback for our faith is not in the here and now. It's not in having it all now that we've been saved. It's in hope that we have been saved. The idea being that Christianity is far more about the future than it is about the present. And so, for instance, for every uh, one verse on the atonement in the New Testament, you'll find two verses on the second coming. And for every one verse on on the first coming, you'll find eight verses on the second coming because it's in hope that we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Don't be surprised that you can't see it, that you don't have it that you don't have what the hope is all about. For why would one hope for what one sees? That is, don't be surprised if you can't have your cake right now because the Christian life is about the process of making the cake and a lot of the ingredients are pretty distasteful. And then he gives his final application. But if we, in, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And so all the yucky ingredients that should themselves give us should themselves give us hope to persevere, which we will need to be doing in the weeks to come, to keep on keeping on as we look forward to something wonderful and delicious that they'll become when we come out of the oven that we call life under the sun. Paul's point, well, is what John, Johnny Erickson Tata wrote. She's the, as most of you know, the quadriplegic who's had such a powerful ministry. How does she survive all the groaning? She says this, I ask less of this life now because I know full well that there is more coming in the next, which is another way of saying in hope we have been saved. I ask less of this life now because I know full well that more is coming in the next. The art of living with suffering is just the art of readjusting our expectations in the here and now. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He chronicled his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. He said, Those fared the worst who lost the ability to look toward the future. These people curl up in a corner and die. Any attempt to restore their inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing them some future hope. Ever felt like just curling up in the corner and dying? Probably all of us have. Some of you may feel that way right now. Many of us may feel that way if this goes on month after month. And so what we're looking at today is some preventive medicine. Look at it as a a vaccine. The vaccine that we call hope, administered by the great physician, one that, a vaccine that can cure a whole lot of things. It can cure the spiritual and psychological and even emotional symptoms, you might say, of any virus. I'll be administering an antidote of truth today. It has two ingredients, kind of like the double helix of uh, uh, DNA. We're, we're going to take them apart and look at them one at a time and then inject them. It's a vaccine that will prepare you for anything that the coronavirus dishes up, or for that matter, anything that life dishes up. It requires two injections. First, you'll need some exposure to the groaning. 
You know how many vaccines expose you to the virus itself so, so you can develop an immunity? Well, bear with me as I administer some of the virus itself. It may give you a fever and some body aches. It may be hard to hear. This is not smiley face Christianity, but it's necessary to your developing the right kind of immunity. We don't talk about the groaning much in certain in Christian circles, but the Bible sure does. The Jews were very honest about life under the sun and the lot of the sons of men, as they would say. It's all through the scripture, including here. Paul begins with the groaning of the creation and he ends with that of the creature of you and me. First, the creation. His teaching here explains a whole lot, including the coronavirus. He says in verse 20 that the whole creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation was subjected to futility. This is what happened when Adam sinned. Death came into the world and with it a whole lot of other things. The first of these things that Paul points out is that the creation is now tremendously perturbed. Because he goes on to say in verse 22, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. As many of you women know, labor pains can get pretty intense. That's what he's talking about. And it gets pretty intense, not only in here, as we'll see, but also out there. I mean, look at all the yucky ingredients that are going into this current universe. Droughts, hurricanes, tornadoes, blizzards, wildfires, as we saw last year. Mother Nature literally throws temper tantrums. We know that because Christ had to rebuke the wind and the waves, Luke 8, 24. And why would he rebuke them if they weren't a tantrum? And to this day, we have perturbed animals, animals with a predatory instinct. The lion does not lie down with the lamb, which is supposed to be the norm, and one day it will be, according to Scripture. And if that weren't enough, there's the pestilence, the viruses, from the hanta to the coronavirus, from fire ants and killer bees to mosquitoes to the West Nile virus that they carry to ticks with Lyme disease. And if those weren't bad enough, we get cockroaches, which in my opinion is about the worst. If ever there was an, an incarnation of evil, it's got to be the cockroach. For me, it's PTSD, back to my childhood in Asia where they were all over the place. I hate them with the utmost hatred, as David would say. They have surely become my enemies. But it's all over the place. Good creatures become bad. Beautiful creatures became ugly like the splendid creature that seduced Eve and now crawls on its belly as a predator, a perturbed predator. All this is a good part of the futility. But not only is it perturbed, it's also perishing. Paul says in verse 21 that the creation is enslaved to corruption, which means death and decay. And the Old Testament explains what he means here. In Isaiah 34, 4, it says, All the hosts of heaven will wear away. All their hosts will wither away as a leaf withers on the vine. This is the what we call the second law of thermodynamics in the Old Testament, the law of entropy, long before science ever discovered it which states that everything in the universe is decaying. It's winding down. It's falling downhill to a state of greatest randomness and least energy. The whole creation is wearing out 
winding down, petering out from order to chaos. Lift up your eyes to the sky. It's all over in the Old Testament. Isaiah 51.6 Look to the earth beneath, for the earth will wear out like a garment. Some believe that in the new creation, this will all be reversed into an evolutionary law of ever greater glory. But for now, in the old creation, it's a devolutionary law, you might say, of ever greater entropy. Because not only is it perturbed, but ever so slowly, but surely, it's perishing. There's so much more here that we don't have time to get into. But Paul's main point is this. You need to put a comma after all that and not a period. Because somehow, by some mystery, some alchemy, all this death and decay that's around us, all this perturbing and perishing, all this futility are the necessary ingredients for glory. God in his sovereignty is turning what Adam's sin brought into the creation, into the birth pangs of a new creation through groaning to glory. Paul says in verse 21 that that, uh, one day through it all, the whole creation, the whole creation will attain, it says, to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It'll be a great reversal, a cosmic reversal from futility to glory. Like C.S. Lewis said, the new creation will excel the old creation as the flower excels the root, as the diamond excels the coal. By which he means that the old creation is like a piece of coal, which by this, all this pressing, all this perturbing, All this futility by the mystery of this recipe is being turned into the diamond of a new creation which will be of immeasurably greater value. But not only will this be the story of the creation, it's it's the story of the Christian, which is Paul's main point. All this is a setup for verse 23. For verse 23, where Paul moves from the the groaning around us to the groaning within us. So get ready because here we go. Here's where the vaccine will go into our own hearts. And it might make you kind of symptomatic. It may be hard to hear, but a little of it now will prepare you to weather a lot of it should it come. And something will come. That's just life uh, about life uh, uh, under the sun. And so... Not only this, Paul says, but we ourselves, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. This is a strong word he's using here, one that we often sanitize. It's a deep and a gut-wrenching word. It's literally a laboring word, which is about as painful as it gets. Paul's picking up on the same image of childbirth that he began with the creation, except he's saying it's not just in the creation, it's in the creature, it's even in the Christian. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Because to this day, the earthquakes and famines and floods of the creation, great as they may be, are only, uh, only mirror the earthquakes and famines and floods inside the human heart of you and me whose lives can get so perturbed and who also, and those of you who are older know this, who are also perishing. 
And it's high time we get this out of the closet because without the bitter truth, we are vulnerable. We're vulnerable to the cynicism that can come over suffering Christians and the, and the, and the anger and sometimes the complete despair. Too often, American Christianity confuses the hope of the gospel with the American dream as though heaven is supposed to be now. We confuse the goal of the gospel with the pursuit of happiness as though it's supposed to be peace and prosperity now, health and wealth now, heaven on earth now. It's, it's glossed over superficial Christianity where as someone said, anything short of constant cheer has come to be perceived as a violation of the American religion. We in America tend to demand ever more of life now, even Christians, rather than less of life now, as Johnny said, because we know full well that more is coming in the next. In so many ways, we groan within ourselves, so much so that even for the godliest of saints, it gets to the place where you, you want to curl up in a corner and die. It's not just the immature who are groaning, who feel like dying. Moses did, for instance. Let's see how this groaning plays out in real life just for a bit among real saints. Let's let God's word inoculate us with small doses of groaning. It will hearten you when you're hurting because deep in your heart, you'll know that you're in good company. Many of you have already felt this way. Some of you may uh, have, have felt this way many times over the years. I sure have. What way? Well, at one point, Moses said, if you will treat me like this, he said to God in Numbers eleven fifteen, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Wow, that stung. Ever felt like that, to go, saying that to God? I have. Elijah, it is enough for me, Lord. Take away my life, 1 Kings 19, 4. I'd call that some groaning. Jeremiah, cursed be the day on which I was born. That is, I wish I were never born. I wish I were dead. That's Jeremiah 24, 14. Jonah, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's Jonah 4, 3. And then in just a day later, he said it again. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than live, Jonah 4, 8. Job, Job was a, 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 a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, God said, and turning away from evil. This godly man said, oh, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. That's Job 6, 9. The New Living Bible translates it, I wish he would reach out his hand and kill me. Now, I know this is strong medicine, but... We need to take the whole dose. He needs to empty, you might say, the, sir, the, the syringe for this to work. So let's just look at two more. This Just two more are left. The Apostle Paul. He said, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength and that we despaired. We despaired even of life. 2 Corinthians 1.8 Elsewhere, he talks about the conflicts without, fears within, about how Titus came to comfort them when they were depressed. Yes, the Apostle Paul got depressed. 
That's 2 Corinthians 7, 6. Last one. Christ, best of all, Christ himself groaned within himself. It says in Hebrews 5 that through the days of his flesh, that is, throughout on and off his 31 years, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud cryings and tears. We could go on and on with this, but the point is this. When the time comes, this will give us courage. You'll take heart because you'll know nothing's wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with your faith that life can seem so hard. Especially now, we need to inoculate ourselves with this truth in a day when life may very well get a lot harder. We need to encourage one another with this truth that if it feels unbearable to you, you're in good company. It happens especially as we grow older, as we've talked about over the months like Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, in so many ways, just like Paul says here, we groan within ourselves. Being a Christian doesn't magically wipe away the intensity of the groaning, as some would say it should. No, rather, as we move now from the crimson strand to the golden strand, it doesn't wipe away the intensity of the groaning. No, it changes the destiny of your groaning, where now it's not for nothing. Far from it. As I said, this coronavirus vaccine requires two injections. First, some exposure to the groaning, and then second, some exposure to the glory. It's what Paul said back in verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The idea is that the suffering produces the glory. It's in order that we may be glorified, which Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 4.17, one of my favorite verses in all scripture, where it says this light momentary affliction, no matter how long it feels like it's going on, is just the blink of a life. This light momentary affliction is producing for us in order that an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The point is that momentary light affliction is now the necessary element, the indispensable component, the secret ingredient in the recipe for glory. They're not for nothing now. The most pointless of your pains are now pangs, birth pangs, as Paul says. They all have a purpose now because All our sufferings are now swept up into the pattern and power of the cross from death to life. The agony and the ecstasy are inextricably linked now. In verse, uh, 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 and the uh, uh, the pain and the gain, the groaning and the glory are inextricably linked just as they are in each of these verses. Back and forth Paul goes from one to the other in verse after verse through the truth that he injects deep in our hearts. So we'll never again think of the pain without also thinking of the gain. 
until at the very end in verse 24 we see the point that in hope we have been saved. In what hope? Oh, there's so much there. A whole creation and so much more. But the heart of that hope is what Paul said early on, earlier on in verse 21. It's attaining to the freedom of the glory of the children of God when we will shine like him. As when Christ said, the righteous will shine forth as the sun, S-U-N, in the kingdom of the Father. C.S. Lewis summed it up in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. He said, the dullest and most uninteresting believer you can talk to will be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as is the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. When he said, we will be dazzling, radiant, immortal, pulsing all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. It's the glory of character that's been forged in the fire through all we suffer. Because our agony is the crucible of character. And our character will be the substance of our glory. It's like Wilfred McRae said. He talks about the glory that will come from the beauty of our human character and how that comes through what we suffer. He said, the real beauty of human character is something uh, that is uh, like the beauty of weathered wood, a beauty ordained and deepened by its graceful and in dignified incorporation of all the elements with which, within which it exists, however harsh they may be. And so with us, our dignity, our beauty, exists in how we come to terms with our defeats, our failures, our decay, and our yielded territory, and nevertheless trudge ahead, Paul would say, nevertheless persevering to a destination we could never have chosen at the outset because we could never have had the wit to imagine it. That is the deeper meaning of the famed school of hard knocks. It is a school in which much is left to chance, but it is also the school in which God operates most powerfully and surprisingly. The school of hard knocks is the arena in which our lives are transformed. It is the only real school for the soul there ever was or ever will be. For why? Well, it's what Paul said. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is our hope. And this hope will not disappoint. And so, as Paul says in the last verse, verse 25, the main application of this passage, it's with perseverance that we wait eagerly for it. And what that means is this. You look at all of it in the face and you're not surprised by it. 
You look at all of it in the face, all that's perturbed and pointless and perishing within you. And you look at all that's perturbed and pointless and perishing around you. And you say what Gordon Gilkey said. He was one of the Christian leaders in the Portland, Oregon revival that happened a couple of decades ago. He was told by his physician that he had fallen victim to uh, an incurable disease. There was no possible way by which death could be averted, which is true for many with the coronavirus these days. What did he do? Despair of life? No. Here is his own account of the hours that followed. He said, I walked out to my home five miles from the center of the city. That is, he trudged on with perseverance. And what kept him going? I walked out to my home five miles from the center of the city. There I looked, he said, at the river and the mountain that I love. And then as the twilight deepened at the stars glimmering in the sky, I said to them, I may not see you many times more, but river, I shall be alive when you have ceased your running into the sea. Mountain, I shall be alive when you have sunk down into the plain. Stars, I shall be alive. I shall be gloriously alive when you have fallen into the sea. He knew what would happen when he came out of the oven that we call life under the sun. And so, inoculated against this viral world, he soldiered on. And so do we. And we're not on our own as we do, as we saw last week, because looking to the Savior in the arms of the Father, as by the Spirit we call Abba Father, we make live contact with Him and we receive power to keep on keeping on, to press on toward the goal, as Paul said, of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus knowing that he has called us through the gospel, 2 Thess 2.14. And this sums it all up, that we may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts wrote a great hymn that sums it up. And with this, I'll close. You can listen to it in the worship set that Brian and Amber put together. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer, though they die. They see the triumph from afar by faith's discerning eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thy armies shine in robes of victory through the skies. The glory shall be thine. 
and knowing that you can go into the world. Well, I guess you can't go into the world anymore, but you know what I mean. Go in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share this gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.